Welcome to episode 48 of the Engine New Energy Transition podcast. And today it's about the future of the Scandinavian power grid. And our guest is a professor for power grid technology at the Royal Institute for Technology in Stockholm, Sweden, also called KTH. And her name is Lina Bertling Tjenberg. And we are going to talk about how the power grid is structured today. We're going to talk everything from extra high voltage to low voltage. We're going to talk about price zones. And we're also going to talk about the trends and developments and challenges when it comes to the integration of intermittent energy sources such as wind and solar. So I hope there's something in this episode for you and I hope that you learned something. Let's go. At the moment now, we have around half of the production from uh, hydropower and then around 17% from uh, wind power and around 25% from nuclear. Welcome to the Enter New Energy Transition podcast. Today, episode 48, and it's about the Scandinavian power grid, because recently I realized that we have actually never really done an episode about power grids, neither in Norway, nor in Scandinavia, nor in Europe. So this is the opportunity now. And I'm right now sitting in the office of uh, Lina Bietling Schernberg at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. And she's a professor in power grid technology at KDH. And we're going to talk about power grids. We're going to talk about Scandinavian power grids. And obviously, we're going to have a look as well into the Swedish power grids. So before we getting this started, Lina, thanks for joining this podcast. Thank you. I'm happy that you're here. Welcome. So you are not just a professor, Lina, but you're also a member of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences and you also co-organize seminars in the Swedish Parliament on a variety of scientific topics. So you are kind of a busy lady. And last week when I actually reached out to you, you were in Singapore. <laughs> so <laughs> traveling a lot. Maybe can you give the audience a little bit an idea who you are, what gets you up in the morning and why you work with power grids? Well, thank you. Uh, well, I would say originally that I'm excited about energy as, as a topic, as a very important topic. And then I was very excited about mathematics. So eventually I felt that applied mathematics and reliability theory was I was really excited about. And then I ended up at power system uh, because power system is an extremely complex technical system. It's very abstract. So if you want to model things, it's a very exciting area. Yeah. Uh, and I think most people, like you said in the introduction, this is not a topic you had before, uh, because I think power system is normally something people don't think about. In Sweden, we had this campaign, it's like two holes in the wall. Uh, it's like fr no one knows about it. It just works. Uh, but now when things are more complicated, get more uh, expensive and, and people are worried about the energy supply, suddenly people are excited. About so it's not it. just two walls in the hole, uh, holes in the wall anymore. Yeah? No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's so much more. <laughs> and I can talk a lot about it. <laughs> and we'll, that's what we're doing here yes. in this episode right now. I, I, Lina, I have a book here in front of me, and it's called uh, Infrastructure Asset Management with Power Systems Applications. And the author is, guess, it's you. So, um, And you just use this word reliability, and you also uh, use this word asset management. So, so why is reliability so key when it comes to po yeah, power grids, and what does asset management mean? Yeah, well, shortly I can say that uh, if we have... Uh, reliability, availability in the power system, we basically have energy supply. Uh, if we would have a failing power, power grid, everything would fail in the energy supply. So it's very, very crucial. 
Um, so what I have worked with in my scientific focus all the time from beginning is on how we can model reliability and how we can prevent failures. So that's what I my book is about, and it's it's asset management. But but the theories I'm proposing are relating. Um, activities to impact on the failures, to reduce the failures, to prolong the lifetime. So it's basically relating maintenance and reliability. So mm. that's, and like that, uh, you, you try to also decrease, for example, maintenance costs yes. in the long run? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about very basic topics. When I guess when for you, these are very basic. So we're going to talk about how our power grids actually structured, um, what current developments that are induced by energy transition efforts in Scandinavia. And then we're also going to talk about how can we actually alleviate these challenges in the long run. But before starting with these topics, I want to start off with the the electricity grid in Sweden, because right before we started recording this, you asked me to have a look at your computer and then you showed me the prices uh, and the price systems in, in, in Sweden. So can you give us an idea in the audience, like how is the Swedish power system actually structured? Like where does the energy come from and where is the energy being used? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would be happy to. Well, if you look at Sweden, it's geographically a quite large uh, country. And the specifics is that we have a lot of hydro in the north. Uh, we have a lot of forest, a lot of industry in north, but most people, most cities are in the south. So if you look at our power supply, uh, we were very early to develop very long distance uh, distribution or transmission, as we call it. So we have a, a lot of uh, cables and overhead lines transporting a lot of electricity from north up uh, down in, in the south. Um, and we can say, so uh, the basic around, and I told you, I'm, ha I'm very excited to go in and see how it looks like now, uh, specifically. And I said, at the moment now, we have around half of the production from uh, hydropower. Around right this moment. Th this moment, yeah. this uh, specific moment. And then around 17% from uh, wind power and around 25% from nuclear. Um, and this is, I would say, very similar as the annual uh, average we have uh, just now. Um, and when we build out the hydro was the first of these we build out. Uh, then we, when we invested in the nuclear, we put it and on the coast uh, because you normally want to um, uh, you put out a lot of heat, so it's good to have it by the waterfront. And so the nuclear is typically in the southern part. And then we have the, the wind power that is located in, in various places. So if you look very, very shortly on our system, uh, we are integrated with the Scandinavian countries. Actually, the integration uh, between Sweden, Norway, Finland and Denmark was the first international um, integrated market in, in electricity in the world. So that's very nice. So we have a very long um, collaboration in that sense. If Sweden is in the middle and we are, of these countries, we are the biggest power grid. So, and it's quite stable. Uh, and that's why I use the word infrastructure in the book. And I think infrastructure is a good way to visualize what we speak about. So it is basically an infrastructure in the society. And as I said a few uh, minutes ago, is that in Sweden, we have a very long uh, <laughs> distance transportation and it's very energy efficient. It's very, few, very small losses. The whole system has an average like 2% uh, losses in the huge system. Uh, we have typically three levels of the voltage level. Uh, the national grid is on the 400 kV. 
that's called Svenska Kraftnät in Sweden. And then we have what we call regional uh, grid around 130 uh, kilovolt. And then we have the distribution system system operators uh, and then it depends now we are here in Stockholm uh, in the city it's like 11 kilovolt the subway is 33 kilovolt uh, and on the DSO level we have the competition what's the DSO level DSO is the distribution system operator uh, so that's closest to the customers uh, and but it is like a natural monopole because you basically have the lines and cables that you're connected to but you buy the electricity on the market so you would have two agreements. Everyone would have two agreements. So you can make your pick of who you buy the electricity from. But from the grid uh, feeding, you need to take one. What do you mean you can, you have two potential suppliers? Like, you mean every household has two potential suppliers? Well, well yeah, what I mean is that you're connected basically physically to a grid. So that is the DSO, the grid. But then you can buy uh, on the market the electricity and that is free. Then you can select who it is. So, but both of them would be, uh, um, yeah, the one would be selling on the uh, on the market and then you have the connection. Yeah, you said that in the north there's, that most of the, the hydropower, so the water power is in the north and not there also there's uh, heavy industry there what kind of industry does, does Sweden have in the north well I mean originally uh, it comes from forest and and fish fish industry we have a lot of fish and today, so but that will be pulp and paper then when you talk about forest well yeah but the exciting thing now is that you do different things you actually do clothing and things from from paper I mean you do a lot of new things from from the forest uh, but then you also have mines. We have a lot of mines. So Sweden have a very um, industrial background of doing a lot of things. So it's the mining and then it's the forest and uh, and then the rivers so uh, and so on, things you did in the past. But but you say today and then now we have also the huge new industries like Northvolt, the battery industry. So that's also up north. Uh, so they build batteries. Is it lithium-ion batteries, or do they build? Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. So the Northvolt battery uh, factory um, and the area around Chalefteo is extremely interesting because it's growing, hugely growing now, and this is shifting actually the map quite a lot because as you we looked together in the beginning, we saw the power flow in yeah. the country, and that is shifting now because we had for a very long time a lot of flow from up north to south. But we see as a development now, which is shifting this picture quite a lot, is that we see a lot of huge new industry in the north that need electricity. For example, the uh, the battery uh, voltage uh, factory for Northvolt. And then we are also working on new um, solutions for hydrogen mm. because they want to shift the industrial processes in able to re um, put out less uh, fossils emissions. So we need more electricity up north. So that's really exciting. Why, why are these industries then going north? Because you just said that right now the prices, I think it was 53 euros per kilowatt hour, per megawatt hour, I think. And right now we have a price that is the same all over Sweden. Yeah. But why would these industry players then go to the north? Is it normally that the prices in the north are cheaper than in the south? Yeah, yeah. Normally, uh, in Sweden today, we have the four uh, price areas. And normally, up north is the cheapest one. In a lot of uh, time during the year, it's really low prices. So we had in past a lot of industries attracted by that. Uh, we have, for example, a lot of uh, data servers up north that has the possibility of the low... Uh, the cold climate and also low prices. So we have... Uh, a cold climate because then they don't need to spend so much money on cooling down yes, the... Yes, 
Yeah. So Facebook, Facebook, for example, is in Lulio, and we have a lot of um, these kind of server uh, areas up north. Ah, interesting. Um, one other thing that I, that I found was interesting when I came to Scandinavia is, for you, it's very normal. And you just said, yeah, we have these four or five price zones, and I know also in in Norway, oh, is it four or five? It's also like it's it's a number of price zones. I come from a country, Germany, where we have. 80 million people and we have one price zone. Why is it that some power grids have these substructures with different price zones and why is it that some others don't have that? Well, I mean, it's not a simple answer to that, but, but what I can say is that in Sweden, um, we decided to introduce uh, the price zones um, in order to try to give an incentive to um, to create more production in the area where we saw that we have too little. Uh, so we had one price area uh, in the beginning, but then we saw that it was not enough. We had a challenge because we needed a lot of um, energy in, in the south and a lot of the production of electricity was in the north. So when we introduced the price zones, um, the idea behind it was to um, to give incentive for, for production in the area where you needed it. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't really work out, <laughs> but that was a good idea. Because naturally in a market, you would, um, if you have a higher price, that's where you would put, put the production. Yeah. Uh, so There's an incentive for, for Yeah, so it's, for it's good. it gives you incentive basically to solve the technical uh, challenge. So if you don't have any challenge, I think it's, it would, it's natural to have one price area. Mm. But that means there are also bottlenecks between different yes. geographies, let's put it yeah. like that. Because if, if there wouldn't be bottlenecks, then it would be easy, as you said, yeah. to transport sufficient electricity from, mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. north to south or the other yeah. way around. So you ba basically one way to say it is that in, in Sweden, we, can, we saw that we, we started to get bottlenecks. And in order to try to reduce them, we, we introduced the... the at the price areas at the, the site where we saw the here is a bottleneck. And specifically one is the one up north where we see that we, uh, we, we don't have enough capacity to transfer as much as needed. Yeah, yeah. So I come from a country that phased out nuclear. I live in a country where there's never been any nuclear developments really. And in Sweden, that's not the case. So there is actually quite a history of nuclear. Can yeah, you walk yeah, us a little yeah, bit yeah. through the, the history of nuclear in Sweden? Well, um, Originally, as I said, we had a lot of hydro, uh, but then we became dependent on oil, like everyone, all countries. But why is that? Was it used to burn and to generate electricity in Sweden? Well, I guess I should have say oil and coal, mm -hmm. uh, because it was both coal and oil. Um, that, but we had. Um, what happened was the, the crisis where, where the prices was increasing. For oil, it was the oil crisis where the prices was hugely uh, up. So we would heat the house with with um, with oil. Uh, and I remember myself in the 80s where we were shifting. Uh, so they were shifting the heating system in houses from oil um, powered into um, electricity. And the shift was when we were in, in, in installing more uh, nuclear. So basically, we, we had an independence because in Sweden, we don't have oil, uh, basically, and we don't have gas. Um, so 
and coal, we don't want to mine it, to, to use it. So what we have is the hydro, and then nuclear was identified as a very good solution. So they made this investment in the 70s, uh, around up to 80s, in nuclear. And, and then it was a shift, so we were shifting. Uh, so it was a dependence thing that we didn't want to import the fuel, basically. I mean, we need to import for, for nuclear, but it's very limited the, um, if you compare it to oil. Um, so we were, uh, it was a way to shift. Um, and then we turned into a kind of a time period where we have a very low price on electricity. So we were attracting industry, which use a lot of it, electricity, and we were using electricity for heating in our houses. So this was a shift, and it was a clean shift, because as you know, both oil and coal is not is we it's not nice for the emissions. So it was a way to get clean, uh, cost efficient electricity supply. Um, so that was the shift, and then the next shift that we are into now and many of us have done before, <laughs> is that we want to use heat if we can. So basically, if you look at, because we are in a cold climate, so as the um, on the household level, uh, in the energy sense, we need a lot of energy for heating. So what I have been uh, missioning quite a lot is that uh, electricity is a beautiful um, thing to use, but we should not use it for heating if we don't need uh, we should use heat for heating <laughs> because otherwise, as you know, energy is just converted into different things. So electricity is a very high level. It's a very nice quality. So normally you would need electricity in combination. But if you have a house, for example, in the city here, we used uh, district heating. So we used waste heat instead of electricity. But that's something you can do in medium-sized and larger cities. Yeah. But for example, when you come to rural areas or small yeah. villages, is there a lot of potential for well, district heating in these areas? Well, no, no. So if you're not like in the cities, you would instead um, use uh, pump heat. So you would do... Um, uh, like low geothermal heat. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you would do drilling. And and normally, I mean, I have it where I live, for example, and, and it's very normal that you do drill. So you use the heat. And if you're living close to a sea or something, you can put down cables in the ground. So I think a lot of places you can actually use heat. Uh, so the, the combination of using heat, if you can, uh, and then complemented with electricity. It's a really good thing. So that would um, be being using heat pumps just yes. at scale, isn't yes. it? Yeah. And Sweden has done that um, for a very long time. Um, in I know some countries it's new, but for us, we have done it for a very long time. Which is interesting because normally you would say that in these rather harsh climates, the, um, the, the efficiency of the heat pumps would go down. Um, but why is that not so much an issue? Uh, or is it just that the electricity is so cheap that it doesn't really matter? Because you have these these coefficients that yeah. should be between I don't know three or four, and if you have one, then you put in one kilowatt hour of electricity, and you get one kilowatt hour out of heat back, and that's like not yeah. really efficient, is it? No, but I think the combination. I mean, what we have to consider is that it's a combination. So if you have a possibility to drill and get heat, and then you combine that with electricity, it's very efficient. And then also we have the solar power. Because for the last couple of maybe 10 years, a lot of people have invested in local solar power. So if you combine that with a battery and a heat pump, it becomes your own little energy system. <laughs> 
And that's very exciting. And I, I, that's what we see now, that people are reducing uh, the overall need of supply because you have your own, own local little system. So I think that is a good development. Um, and what we can see, if a lot of people do that, um, in the summary, it, it will have an impact on, on mm. the whole paradigm. Are there substantial incentive policies from the Swedish state to support homes and rooftop solar? Uh, well, we, yes. I mean, we had, in, in many years back, we had actually incentives for the uh, drilling, for the heat uh, pump. Uh, and then we had for some period, uh, you could get some um, uh, some reduction if you invested in solar. Um, and it was so popular, so they, <laughs> they, uh, they. I mean, it was very, very many people uh, using that. So we have had in past, yes, we do, uh, different ways of supporting that. Um, and I think uh, now we see, I mean, it, it's it's a long lineup for people that want to invest in solar now because it's not available. The technology is not available to buy. Uh, so it's, it's, I think, that's a positive thing of what happened the, the last years. Um, well, mainly of the, um, what we call energy crisis, that people are now aware about the cost and they want to reduce it. So they want to find all kinds of uh, ways. And so they put more time on interest in it. Uh, because from my side, the technology side, we have talked about this for maybe, I would say, 15 years or something. <laughs> so a lot of the technology is here and a lot of smart things you can do, but people have not been interested mm. uh, because the, it was very cheap with electricity. So they, they were not so interested. Yeah, it's understandable. So, so yeah. a lot of the things that we see, we are happy because now the customers are active and they can use a lot of things that are available. Mm -hmm. Coming back to this question about nuclear, can you give us, like, that's actually where we kind of departed and then I asked some more other questions that <laughs> happens. Um, how many power plants, nuclear power plants are currently active in Sweden? Well, when, and you said yeah. there's one being phased out or has well, been? Or? Well, I think when we talk about nuclear, it's so specific because we have this very strong uh, regulations. So we normally talk about the site. So to, today we have three sites of nuclear. It's Forsmark, the most north, uh, close to Stockholm. And then we have uh, Ringhals and Oskarshamn. And then we used to have, uh, Ringhals is on the uh, the west coast. Mm. So we have two on the east and one on the west. Uh, and then we have Bashebek that we closed down, that's uh, close to Denmark. Because it was too old or it's uh, been used? Well, uh, no, not really. It, it's, it has been a lot of debate on why we closed it down. Uh, but I can say that uh, Denmark was very happy we're <laughs> closing it down. It was a strong, um, well, a strong view that they want, didn't want to, to have it. Um, some argue that it was economically uh, the right thing to close it down. And some argue that it was not. Um, but but I think, yeah, but I mean, I, most people say it was economically the right thing to do at the moment. But what, what you need to realize is that a nuclear is a very, um, it's a complicated technology and uh, it's not just to close it down. I mean, it's a similar if you look at a lot of other um, energy supply as well, that you don't just close it by and then you you leave it. So even though we closed down Bashebek, I mean, it's still there. It's still the site is there and and things are there. So it takes quite a lot of time to restore and take away things. It's not a fast um, shift. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. in Germany we had like about that, about 20 and they're being taken down now and it, as you just said it just takes quite some time. Yeah, but I think they are prolonging the lifetime on some of them now. Yeah, but only until I think April 23 and then they're all like they were supposed to the last ones were supposed to be down in 22 but yeah. because of the energy crisis and the Russian invasion in Ukraine they, it was prolonged but only for a couple of months because as you just said yeah. you can't just shut it down. Well, and you can also not really just prolong it because then you have to really reinvest into maintenance again. You have to get more materials to run it again. And so it, it's, as you said, it's a complex technology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, last question about mm -hmm. the, the energy mix in Sweden is you, you talked, you said there's quite a lot of uh, wind power. And right now, as we just checked, 17.6% of the power in the grid right now comes from wind power. Is that mostly onshore and or is there also offshore? And is it mostly in the south or is it in the north or pretty much anywhere? Uh, well, I can tell you that, that the first, uh, we put in operation 2007 an offshore farm, Lillegrund. Oh, offshore. Yeah, mm. and that is, at that time, it was one of the biggest in the world. It's 120 megawatt. Uh, but after that one, uh, it has been a focus on onshore. And that was a political uh, decision. And a lot of the, I would say that the large farms are up north. Uh, but today, th there are a lot of things happening, and there are plans and there are activities to build offshore again, um, and we will see what happens. Um, personally, I'm very excited about the offshore. I was part, uh, I was active in the Lilgrund uh, before they put it in, in operation, and I think that this is really an area that, that's very exciting if Sweden can be part of it, because it's it's really have the strength of uh, that you don't need the fuel, and that is a very big, um, very big uh, positive thing on it. Yeah, when we talk about uh, Lina, when we talk about the energy transition now, what are like the big current developments that you are seeing that actually has impact or potentially impact on the power grid, maybe in Sweden, but also in, in general, when we think about the energy transition? Well, you know, I want to say one more thing about nuclear Please uh, go ahead. when I come back to it, because I, I, I want to say a positive thing, too, about nuclear. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're talking with a German who, yeah, anyway. Yeah, but yeah, yeah go. because what, the last year, it's funny, in, in Sweden every year, they have uh, end of the year when they list new words in the society. Yeah. And it's very interesting because it gives a reflection of what happened. And last year, one of the new words in our Swedish language was SMR. So it's small modular reactors. So that was a new word that came in our society last year. So I just wanted to mention that. I, I thought that's, that stands for steam methane reformation, SMR. Uh, not in our <laughs> area, no. So I wanted to mention that because it is a really uh, big thing. Uh, so what we see in front of us is that they can reduce the cost of nuclear um, by the, the way of building many similar things that are in a sense small. So they call them small modular reactors. So we see in front of us that we will probably shift the portfolio quite a lot. Uh, I think we will increase the wind, but we will also uh, probably exchange what we have today into new um, the same generation, but small modular reactors. So that will shift. But then if we talk about the technology, uh, what is uh, one really interesting thing is 
that we will um, we see that we will have much more um, DC in the system. And maybe here I need to explain what I mean. Because if you look at the power system as a whole that I showed you in the beginning, we have this big uh, distance um, transfer from north to south. This system is an AC system. So what it means is that we have currently, uh, every moment we have this alternating current of AC, uh, both current and voltages. And we need uh, every second, every moment to have a balance between production and consumption. And the AC system is connected with other countries with DC. Uh, and with the DC, you make an agreement and say, we are sending this and this, and you can buy it on the market. But technology-wise, you have some kind of shifting between there because you have the DC and AC. So what we see uh, would probably happen that I'm very excited about, of course, is that we will have more DC in the AC system. Uh, because DC has a lot of uh, benefits. Um, you can push a lot more capacity in a smaller um, volume of technology uh, because when you have a three-phase system, you normally need a lot of um, volume of space. Mm. So DC is preferable in, in some a lot of aspects. You can push more um, through it and you can use a, a smaller space um, and you can um, control it. Because what the, the trick in the power system is that you want to control because you have a lot of, um, you have the frequencies, you have the voltages, and, and when you transport things, you get some kind of um, quality uh, measures in it. And specifically, you push in from EVs and batteries and stuff, you need to clean it out. And with DC, it's a lot of nice way to handling it. It's much easier to control it. So what we have, we have one project now in Sweden, it's called Southlink. Uh, it was originally called Southwest Link, but then we didn't connect to Norway, so it's Southlink. So it's towards Germany or uh, No, no, Denmark? it's between uh, Sweden and Norway. Okay. Uh, and basically that was the first time we integrated DC with AC on the transmission level. So today we have a mixture of AC and DC in the transmission. And... This is something that I think will come more. Uh, offshore, we only have DC because it's the only technology you can have these long distances. Um, but I think we will have more DC in general, also in low voltage, like here. Because when you produce uh, from solar, etc., you normally get DC. So it's, you will have, we will see a mixture of AC and DC in the system, um, which is a lot, some benefits, a lot of benefits in it. And in order to make all these things happen, we need power electronics. Uh, so power electronics is is a lot of, it will be everywhere. And the development here is that we go down in size. Uh, the things are smaller. We work to have um, less losses. And we want to basically make things cheaper. Um, so it will be less complicated. Um, but I think uh, in general, if I say DC, um, distribution and DC transmission, it's something that will will change. Um, and I think in general, um, it will be a more complex system because we have we have more variation. I mean, now I'm looking at, I wrote down the voltage levels that we have here currently. And probably in future, we will have even more of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because if we optimize the system, it's no need to limit yourself because um, if I can say in general if you go up in size it costs more it's more expensive 
uh, with material, with, with insulation, because it's normally insulation we talk about here. So I think in future you will probably optimize things more, which means that if you can go down in voltage, you would do it. If you can go up, you would. So you would probably have a, a mixture. And maybe I can say just very briefly that the whole point is that if you transfer something from one point to another, you want to have low losses. And if, normally with yeah. DC, you have low, lower losses than with AC, yes, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And also if you have a high voltage. Mm. Uh, so that is why you have a high voltage, you transfer, and then you use it on low voltage yeah. because it's, it's um, dangerous. So basically you want to use it in a low. So you transport it, for example, from the north of Sweden, where you have all the, the hydropower yeah. with high voltage yeah. electricity, 400 kV, yeah. whatever, down to mm -hmm. Scott, Stockholm, and then you transform yeah. it down and then you yeah. use it here and mm -hmm. yeah. And the big invention that is quite recently was that um, the, the difficulty with DC is actually to trans the transformation. Because in AC, you have a zero. So you use the zero when you do um, transfer it into different voltage levels. So one of the very big inventions that happened, I think, um, 2015 or seven. I don't remember exactly year, but it's quite recently, was the DC uh, transferred. So you can um, cut the DC. Because otherwise it's it's very di difficult to do that, mm. uh, to cut the power on a very high power on the DC. What when you say that that's maybe one way of making the the grid like to optimize the grid better? Um, how like what are the challenges that grow out of that? Do we need more regulation? Do we need more knowledge from people, more educated people? Um, like because I've never heard this. So for me, this is completely new. And I'm like, okay, I was more expecting that you would say, oh, we have a lot of more renewable energy. So that's why we have to be, there will be more demand for flexibility and these kind of things. And I guess they are true. But then in addition, maybe also what you just mentioned, this more DC, even on lower levels will also come. How how will that play in together? And what, are, how, what needs to be done so that we actually have an integrated system that is optimized towards all these dimensions that we were just mentioning? Yeah. Because um, it sounds quite challenging. <laughs> well, yes. I, I think, I mean, we are in Europe here. So in Europe, um, in the European Union, we have a lot of um, collaboration in the standardization and regulations. Um, so today, um, all the uh, industry actually has to follow a lot of regulations. So in these regulations, it stipulates quite detail how, how the technology look like, etc., um, and so that is something that um, it's important to have the knowledge in the in the places where they take decisions on this. I, I mean, most of us in society, we know that when when we were uh, joined the European Union, it was a lot of um, discussions on uh, food, for example, what is a cucumber, what is a banana or something. And then people were laughing about it because it needs to look like this to be a banana. And it's the same thing in, in <laughs> all kinds of topics that you need, if you collaborate with large <laughs> actors, you need to define things. So standardization and these different kinds of protocol or regulations are very important. And here it's important to be active. And I know from National Grid, for example, they put a lot of resources to be active on these arenas so i think that is that is important um because then you you make sure that uh you create good a good platform because you need uh, to collaborate <laughs> uh, 
so I think that is one of, one of the big things. But otherwise, I think these type of knowledge platforms are very important. And as, as we said in the beginning, I'm, I'm part of this organization that gives seminars in the parliament. And what we try to do there is to reach out with knowledge, because as a scientist, we... We work with the knowledge. I mean, we try to, I mean, I'm engineering and mathematician, so I try to model things, but there are obviously other uh, scientific fields where you want, but we want to explain things and, and understand the logic. And, and, and in, in summary, we create a knowledge platform. So this platform is very important for the uh, decision makers in the society, for the, uh, for the business area. So I think it's important that we come out with this. And what we see in future is that society in itself, it's more complicated. Um, so I think actually knowledge is a key that we come out and we try to, um, to make sure that, because it's, unfortunately you can see in the society that they are different drivers. <laughs> At university here, and, and as a scientist, I think most of us are very much driven to uh, to do good. I mean, we are driving to sustainable development goals. We are driving to improve knowledge, to to give independent information, etc. So this is our drivers. But if you look at the business, a company, I mean, they they should maximize their profit. So here we need to find ways to regulate so so they are maximizing the profits but but in the direction <laughs> so it will contribute to the sustainability goals so i think it is very important in the future that we we come out with the correct information and knowledge uh, in order for the industry or, or um, other actors to do good things because uh, otherwise it will be difficult as to succeed i think yeah. Especially, as you said, that as these systems be are becoming more complex and yeah. more complex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lina, it's, it is one, uh, seventeen, and we said we would talk until one fifteen, so we're two <laughs> minutes over. So thank you very much for joining yeah. me for this episode. So um, nice. Good luck with your uh, future uh, projects and obviously with these seminars in the Swedish Parliament. Sounds actually quite interesting. And um, yeah, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. A happy pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>